0: Hello everybody and welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology and Society, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm CJ Velasic, one of the hosts for this channel. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Oliver Rollins, Assistant Professor of American Ethnic Studies at the University of Washington and the author of today's book, Conviction, subtitled The Making and Unmaking of the Violet Brain, uh, published by Stanford University Press. Um, welcome, Oliver. Uh, thank you, CJ. So, I wonder if you would um, help us out by beginning the interview, telling us a bit about yourself. Um, how did you get started in in academia and in, in this kind of social science research? Sure.
1: So, um, I I would say my you know lead up to my PhD was kind of a uh, by accident in many ways. I um, So I'm originally from Houston, uh, Texas, or right outside of Houston, Texas. Uh, I did my undergrad at the University of Houston in biology. And originally, you know, like most biology students, I was thinking about going into medicine and things like that. Um, And sort of shifted gears during my last few years of my undergrad to really start thinking a little bit more about uh, African American studies. I was really influenced by... Uh, professor down at the University of Houston, Dr. James Connors, who actually recently just passed away, um, I was really, you know, influenced by, or he really, you know, helped me kind of influence to think about what science, and particularly what I wasn't getting from my biology classes, um, and, and really kind of just thinking about these questions that I would have about, you know, race or inequality and things like that that you don't necessarily get to talk about, discuss in biology. Um, I say all that as, you know, me and him were having discussions about, you know, what I was going to do after school. You know, I had no longer, I no longer really wanted to go to med school. And he persuaded me to actually go get my um, master's degree uh, in Pan-African Studies, which I did at the University of Louisville. And at the University of Louisville, very similar, just way in which um, I was being um, kind of stimulated to kind of think about these questions. And the question I had when I first got to Louisville, being in Black Studies was kind of a... A, a different, uh, a really. Uh, I flipped the question from biology, not talking about issues of, let's say, race or justice, uh, to Pan African studies, Africana studies, not talking about issues of science or, and particularly health. Right? I was really thinking that, you know, why, why don't, why isn't there uh, a more robust discussion about health in Black studies at the time? You know, this is the early two thousands, and that really. Uh, led me, my advisors there kind of pushed me. They were both, they were in sociology and they pushed me to kind of think more about sociology and sociology. And that's what got me into sociology, which I did at uh, University of California, San Francisco, UCSF. And initially when I got to UCSF, my question that I really had was thinking about violence as a health problem. I mean, I, I specifically went to UCSF to work with uh, Howard Penderhues, who does work on violence as a health problem, and that's what i was doing really up until after you know what we call like our comp exams after where we you know take our exams to get ready to write our dissertation uh it's when i kind of come to howard and be like uh, actually i'm not sure i want to do violence prevention stuff uh for dissertation anyway um and he was really encouraging you know at the time i had been taking classes in science technology studies you know it's the first time i had realized that you could actually study science, you know, outside of science, kind of study itself as this kind of disciplinary body. And that led me to, uh, you know, really starting to think about these questions of science, coming back to these questions of science with a a more sociological eye. Um, And I was also kind of following at the time, you know, one of my mentors, Janet Sim, who was also doing work on race and science. And really, you know, this was the time, the early 2000s was around that time or mid-2000s, early to the mid-2000s, I'll say, about uh, like 2010 or so, was around a time where people were, you know, really into these kind of debates around the use of race within science, right? A lot of uh, work, as you may know, was coming out about, uh, academic work, about these questions about race. The Human Genome Project had just been sequenced about a decade before, and so a lot of questions were coming out about race. My question, my original question when I came into this project was to think about the relationship between race and neuroscience so my question was uh really based on the fact that there was nothing really written about what was going on with neuroscience uh particularly these you know particularly neuroimaging these new technologies that really emerged during the early 2000s as well um in the more kind of way in which we see them the contemporary way we see them today um and i was really just interested in like if you know if we want to know why genetic how geneticists define operationalize race why are we asking this question about the neurosciences? And that's what kind of led me to the book. Um, ideally, I was thinking, you know, going back to violence, I was kind of combining all of my kind of disciplinary background from biology, uh, black studies, and now med to now think about this question. And really I, I came back to this question of violence because in my head I'm thinking, uh, how can you study violence, you know, in any way, within, particularly within the U.S. without thinking about this question of race?
0: Absolutely, yeah, and I, you know, the, the, part of what makes this such a fascinating book is that you uh, consider those problems that you know. T- to me, um, not that not that I'm I- an expert in um, ethnographies or of neuroscience labs or or uh, history of neuroscience, but from the works that I have read, you know, th- th- this isn't a, a topic that really comes up specifically, the, the violent brain model or um, the, the role of race in, in these models, um, in these neuroscience models in general. Uh, but could you tell us a bit about, you know, what w- what is basically the main topic of the book here, this violent brain model, uh, which starts in the late, nineteen eighties basically. Um, and and so how does it how does it relate to this idea of predicting potential violent behavior?
1: Yeah, so the, the brain model is a is a term that, it, that I kind of use consistently throughout the book. It's not necessarily a term that neuroscientists themselves would use. Um, and what I was really trying to capture is two things with it. One is that Whatever it is, this, these behaviors that are being studied by neuroscientists, um, which are often not, so many, most of them don't use the term violence. They'll say they're studying antisocial behavior, uh, psychopathy. Um, you have a few that may say that they study criminal behavior, but for the most part, they've medicalized it in a particular way from the DSM. And that's really one of the things I, I talk about in one of the chapters is how there's a pivot away from criminal Uh, designations, right, of of behavior to these more medical designations as a way to kind of rebuttal these old critiques about the theoretical warrant, right? The theoretical warrant in the sense of, you know, should we be thinking about studying crime uh, using biological models? And for them, they're saying, well, maybe not crime, but if these are uh, neuropsychological or psychological models that are defined in the DSM, Therefore, there is a warrant to think about the biological components there, and therefore we should do it. And so on the one hand, I'm thinking about how there's this kind of slippery way in which you know, they really are talking about criminal, you know, criminal behaviors a lot of times, but they're not necessarily saying that. And so there's a way in which these designations from the medical designations to our kind of understanding of criminal designations, is always a slippage there. And so I, I, I encapsulate that by just kind of thinking about violence itself. And the other point about the violence brain model was that it was a different kind of model from before uh, in the kind of bio criminology days. Right you now make a distinction between, you know, these criminologists and biocriminologists of today who are, I mean, there's work that's coming out of criminology itself. That's also thinking about the biological underpinnings of violence, but that's very different in many ways than what neuroscientists and even geneticists are doing. Um, and so on the, the, kind of biocriminological side, you know, many of these folks are not in the lab doing, you know, the the bench science, I guess we could say, that then leads up to uh, these kind of um, uh, results around that relationship between, let's say, biology or neurobiology and behavior. Um, They're thinking about it either in theoretical ways, statistical ways, um, but they're using kind of the work that comes out of genetics and neuroscience as a way to make that case. I'm focus, I want to focus much more on the people who are making the science and so on the one hand these are uh, what we would call neuroscientists or geneticists um but pretty much all of them have training in psychology and that's something true around most of neuroscience today I mean the neuroscience PhD programs are you know really new They're, they you know tw- you know 30 years ago, you wouldn't have gotten a, a, a PhD in neuroscience. 20 years ago, you probably wouldn't have gotten a PhD in neuroscience. You know, um, th- these things are very new. Um, and so most of the people who call themselves neuroscientists today or who are under that umbrella of neuroscience uh, probably have training in psychology and uh, one of the science sciences. And so that's so, um, that was kind of the focus there to think about the neuroscientists, but particularly to think about with the violent brain model was a risk. Right, this question of risk right and so the, the violent brain model is much more about um with a much different model than let's say the criminologist because the focus was not necessarily on who is a criminal the focus was on risk and it was really what i called in the book a risk of risk they're not actually interested in who would be at risk for violence for violence what they're interested in is who's at risk for antisocial behavior which then places them at a higher risk to behave violently or criminally within society. So therefore, it's a kind of a two-step process. If you're at risk to be antisocial or to, be, or to have um, psychopathic tendencies, then you are now at a greater risk to behave violently, right? And so in the book, that's what I'm, I'm, I'm capturing when I'm saying the violent brain model, right? It's doing that, those types of work. The book itself though, really wanted to focus on a relationship between kind of the past and present, and really how they deal, how the contemporary neuroscientists deal with these, um, these continued uh, controversies that impact the science. And so historically, there's always been these controversies that impacted this science, right? On the one hand, uh, it's the one I said about earlier around just kind of this theoretical warrant, right? So um, should you actually use a biological model of study violence, right? And this kind of gets back to that, that old kind of debate around, uh, you know, biology versus uh, society or nature versus nurture, however you want to put it. Um, so on the one hand, you have this. And the way in which these neuroscientists kind of deal with that is essentially they say, well, we're not going to deal with kind of criminal behavior for the most part. We want to deal with these, um, we're only thinking about behaviors that are related to um, psychological disorders, neuropsychological disorders, particularly those that are uh, defined in the DSM. So that's one one thing that they do. The other thing that they do to kind of get away from this is to think about just the new technologies, right? So another critique is that um, many of the early kind of Libroso, early, you know, late 19th century, early 20th century work where this kind of emerges for the most part, um, that it was based off these pseudoscientific uh, technologies and even knowledges, and here we have neuroscientists who are saying, "Well, look, we're using the latest kind of technologies from genetics and neuroscience today, and so we've kind of have dealt with the ways in which bias can be built in with um, with pseudoscientific methods, right?" And so that so that's one of the other ways in you know, their thinking, and then overall. Again, they're kind of coming back to this idea of nature versus nurture and making this argument that the brain itself is also a way in which they can capture where the biological and the social meet. And so they make an argument that, you know, social or sociological methods of sociological understandings of crime can't, you know, can't accurately uh, capture, you know, the, the true risk factors that go into crime because it's not taking that into account biology and so the whole point is to try to get a bigger picture of everything that's going on through this uh through you know the behavior through the way in which people act within society and figure out a way to which we can capture this uh in, in a model and then of course there's this kind of question about um particularly about race. But I think the, the, the questions uh, about race, and particularly in the book, which I, I started with a question about race, and in the book, I expanded it to a, a question about inequality in itself, and particularly st- systemic inequalities within society. And for the most part, these neuroscientists have really moved away from questions of race, which really plagued the early science, right? So you can, you know, um, you can imagine the ways in which someone who was, let's say, of African descent or African-American was being viewed through kind of the early Lombroso science, which just by being black itself, uh, was a risk factor for crime, not just a risk factor for a criminal, but actually designated you as a criminal, right? Having criminal tendencies. And so to move away from that was to kind of get into this point of thinking about, well, maybe we shouldn't talk about race at all, right? So maybe, so we agree that race is not a good way for us to understand risk factors of crime. It's not a risk factor of crime. So therefore we'll just move away from it at all. But at the same time, because we're building this more objective kind of science it actually will benefit the groups like let's say African Americans within the US who are most plagued by violence within society.
0: Right. Yeah, so so much yeah, so so many different points here that get they get brought into play as we consider the role of the brain, you know, in, in, in these scientific models. Uh, of risk factors of you know the potential for violent behavior. Um, I, I'm I'm really curious though. Um, so, you know you, you already did bring up some of this uh, some of this rich historical context that you provide in the book of the silent the science of violence and criminality. Um, could could you maybe a li- elaborate a bit more on like these uh, as you put it in the book these degeneracy research programs, um, you know, largely coming out of criminology, but also the sci sciences. Um, how, how do they, how, how do those histories um, give us context for, for these contemporary uh, brain models? And, 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 you know, as you were talking about with these controversies, how, how do they lead into a, you know, a, a unique shift we might say, um, and how these scientists view, you know, the the brain and and violent behavior today versus, um, you know, whether we're talking about late nineteenth century or, or mid twentieth century. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so a uh, good question. So uh, the way I capture this in the book is to um, is what I really uh, I guess focused on was after. Um, kind of after the 1950s, kind of the shift that ends up happening after, particularly after World War II, right? So if you think about these early degeneracy, you know, the early kind of degeneracy, I guess, programs around thinking about degeneracy, I I should say, um, you had folks like, you know, I mentioned before, like CJ Lombroso, who had like criminal anthropology. He's thought about both as the father of, uh, biological criminology, but also just the thought of criminology in the ways in which just thinking about criminology as or thinking about crime, I guess as a um, as something to be studied using scientific um, methods, right? And so, in the early kind of you know 19, 20th century, and really this could be pushed back, you know, even before that, if you think about things like phrenology and other kind of questions around, you know, these questions around nature and nurture have always been part of a, intimately tied, I would say, to questions about behavior, particularly criminal behavior. But I start with Lombroso because this is the first person who tries to capture it in this kind of scientific way, right? And Lombroso really, that kind of thinking, you know, really was prolific, I would say, in the early 20th century, right? So many people started to adopt these kind of new ways to think about, particularly to think about the body, right, the relationship between the body and using the body as a way to visualize and understand uh, one's so- social work, and particularly a social work when we're thinking about, uh, you know, this idea of criminal, right, that they that they could actually be a criminal. So for Lombroso, we can look at things like, you know, their earlobes, or we could look at things like facial features, and then we can, and then he could discern from there whether or not this person committed a crime, or whether or not this person was a criminal, right? And that's what the science was kind of built off of by, you know, by the, you know, 1940s or so, this was also being picked up in very um, uneven ways, I would say, in places like Germany. Not everyone in Germany was totally picking up on the brosso. In fact, there was some pushback, even with the folks who were thinking about, you know, biological kind of notion biological uh, risk factors or factors for crime they didn't necessarily all buy the, you know what lombroso was selling but many people were buying this kind of idea that there is something about biology that could tell us about one's criminal uh worth in a way or or, or risk for being not even risk whether or not someone's being a is a criminal or not and of course you know after world war ii right so much of this gets put under scrutiny because of the horrific, uh, you know, uh, experiments that were happening uh, during Nazi Germany, right? And so because of this, all of a sudden, everyone, um, scientific community, I would say, uh, begin to really rethink whether or not, uh, one, whether or not, Biological factors are important for us, to, or something that we should be thinking about with crime, and also tangential to this, this kind of question of race was also uh, kind of put or, or tabled, I would say, in the 19 like in the 1950s. What I pick up from the book, though, is what I call kind of this reemergence of biological theories that ends up happening fairly shortly after you know World War II, like in the 1960s. All of a sudden, we start to see psychological theory that starts to bring back biological factors and to think about kind of the psychology um, of violence, but particularly in ways of thinking about that biology is important to psychology. So that biology is important to understanding psychology and that we can think about psychology and crime or psychology and and violence. And so this is where, you know, we get this kind of reemergence of biological theory after a short period of going away. And that's why I started to follow because that's where we see these connections to the brain. I think in ways that are a link much more to the contemporary. It's not that people weren't thinking about you know the brain or, or the head during before that time. It's just that it has a better link to kind of the contemporary understanding, and it and, and it helps us understand how psychology gets tied into this, particularly when we think about the neurosciences, right? And so by the time we you know um, by the time we get into like the nineteen 19- you know, 60s and so, um, and and particularly in the 70s, even that that type of understanding is 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 under scrutiny, right? And particularly the genetic stuff, right? It, it becomes, uh, I'm sorry, not the genetic stuff, that uh, heredity stuff. So you have like the twin studies and things like that, that they are coming out about violence. And we have stuff around the uh, XYY genes that are coming out about violence, right? This idea that having an extra Y chromosome, particularly for men. Uh, places you at a higher risk to being violent or that there's more criminals, you know, uh, who are locked up in prison that have this extra Y gene, this extra Y gene is in some kind of way, I'm sorry, this extra Y chromosome in some kind of way is uh, making them um, more aggressive and therefore, you know, more likely or more prone to be violent. All of this becomes comes under attack and comes under scrutiny. And by the 1980s, it really is starting to go away. But this coincides with the rise of Kind of modern day genetic technologies and modern day neuroscientific technologies, and so the questions don't necessarily go away, right? And so the, you can kind of trace that historical, this historical way of sto- historical kind of thinking, um, into the contemporary. And so one of the things that I make a point about is that these neuroscientists, you know, they're really cognizant of the past, and and, and they're really they frame their 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 work around trying to. Um, really address those, what they what they agree as being miscues of the past, right? And so the past is always kind of intimately tied to the work that they do today, um, but it also has allowed them to um, to carry or, or to continue some kind of, what I, what I would think about these kind of ontological, um, um, these ontological, um, uh, I don't know, I guess, uh, ways of thinking. Um, or ontological properties, I guess we could say, about crime and about, you know, humans themselves that are also carried into this research. And so one of them, and one of the things that, you know, I I have to, we, I have to think about is just the idea, the very idea that we can divide society into criminals and, uh, you know, normal people, right? This very idea that there's in some kind of way a criminal and it, it is this identity that can be defined both socially and biologically, but then it's actually a very stable thing that they define, right? Because if you think about, you know, what counts as a criminal, right? It raises a lot of questions, like who counts as a criminal? Are you always a criminal throughout your life? Are there times, you know, you know, when you're not a criminal? You know, if you don't get caught for doing what we would call within society a crime, are you actually a criminal, right? So there's deep philosophical questions that have to be asked and that are not addressed, but they, but they are at the crux of the ways in which. This science has to work because you have to be able to kind of define and divide people into normal groups and people into criminal groups or into, you know, antisocial groups in order to make these kind of comparisons that the science wants to do.
0: Right. Yeah, absolutely. So um, your, your book is also filled with these interviews with these scientists and um, some, some really rich responses that you include from them. Um, but I was, I was wondering based off of, um, these, uh, these interviews, um, how did that, did that, did that clarify anything for you in terms of how they classify violence? And then, you know, you do use this term fitting, how, how does the work of, of fitting happen in these laboratory spaces based off of, you know, what, what you've observed, what, what you've heard from the scientists?
1: Yeah, so the, the, with the, so the book is based uh, in part off of interviews and also this, um, what I call kind of a qualitative content analysis, which I was um, kind of doing a document, textual analysis of um, research in, neuro, in neuroimaging, specifically, specifically neuroimaging of violence from the late 1980s, really around about 89 up into 2012. 2016, I think I think I may have it to 2016 in the book originally in the dissertation of the 2012, um, and yes, the interviews did because they did they did offer some some new insights because one of the things that you know you, you you probably know is like you know what we publish in papers don't always capture everything that happens let's say within our experiments or even you know, within the research itself, or even with what it may have been in a prior draft, right? And there are also particular types of, uh, I guess, uh, rules around, you know, how long a paper could be, what can go into a paper, the audience, all of these things, which you can't totally get from, you know, so you can't totally get many of these social political kind of implications that I'm trying to get at by simply uh, reading through the, the, uh, the articles. So, for example, one of the things that very early in my research, you know, as I said, I, I, I really went to this research at first, trying to track and trace how race is being used. And so, in, in the early part, as I'm going through doing this constant analysis, you know, I met with my advisor, Howard Pinderhues at the time when I was a student, a dissertation, um, a, a graduate student, and I was like, no. I know, I like, I have a problem, and he's like, What's the problem? I was like, Well none of these papers are actually talking about race at all, right? And so I was like, how in the world am I going to be able to kind of figure out like what's going on with race if no one's talking about race? And Howard was kind of the first person who was like, actually, that's even better in some ways, right? He was like, I mean, now you have a question of trying to think about why is it that race has disappeared in this research or it's not being mentioned in this research? And so now, you know, so he's kind to push me to kind of think about it in that way. And really, that's the interviews played a huge role right to really fill in those gaps right and so it fills in those gaps in, in a way that I can ask them about questions about race which is no way you can glean just by looking at the articles um, the second part of your question was kind of about this this notion of fitting right and actually um, repurposing a word that, that actually came up from one of the uh, neuroscientists who does this work when he when he talks about the fact that like you know the barriers, no perfect kind of way to define and capture, you know, let's say a social, uh, I'm sorry, a, a neuropsychological disorder related to kind of antisocial behavior, right? He was like, it's really hard to kind of capture what that means uh, in, a, in a neat definition. And instead, he makes this argument that what you're looking for is how um, these risk factors, these conditions, uh, these things that they measure, uh, how they fit the, the uh, definition and the, uh, that's within the DSM. Like, so how do they fit the way it's described within the DSM? And so it's about kind of finding this fit that I said, which again, it kind of brings up this question about the um, the socialness that happens within uh, the science, right? That there's this kind of social factor. It's not a, a simple, hey, I checked out the mark and you had all these risk factors and there they are all within the DSM and I can just match them one to one. It's a way as an interpretive Element to this, right, and that's what I wanted to capture about fitting is that there's this kind of way that there that you have to interpret, you know, what it means for these clinical um, uh, demarcations to be useful or not, right? And so it kind of reshapes what I, I argue, kind of reshapes these boundaries of mental illness and these meanings of violence, right? So it's doing kind of both of that. So, um, for example, you can you know think about. You know what types of uh, you know ways in which something like uh, let's say the the test there's a you know there's a certain kind of test that people take let's say for like psychopathy the hair test right and one of the questions that I bring up is about okay in the in the neuroscience in the in the neuroimaging research right so a lot of people do neuroimaging on psychopaths and they use neuroimaging, uh, they use something like the hair test to then kind of figure out, you know, who's in my, let's say, psychopathy group and who's in my quote unquote normal group. And so let's say that there, this, this hair test, let's say it has a, um, a scale that goes from zero to 35 or something like that. And let's say everybody over 30 is considered a psychopath, right? But to me, it raises a lot of interesting questions, right? And one of the questions that I ask is like, Well, what is actually the qualitative kind of difference between, let's say, a 29 and a 30 or 30 and a 31? Right. And the fact that these things are not necessarily just, uh, you know, very straightforward things that you observe, they have to be interpreted by the neuropsychologist. Right. It raises a lot of questions about, again, how you have to fit certain people certain behaviors and certain mental illnesses in a way in order for, in order for it to be studied right and it's the very first thing that you have to do the very first thing that they have to do is actually define these groups based off of these uh dsm designated categories right and I, and so what i want to bring what i try to bring up there is that from the very jump we already have these kind of imprecise ways in which we're thinking about what it means to be violent and if you have these imprecise ways what does that mean to then study it using something like science, which is supposed to use kind of very precise measures, these precise instruments.
0: Yeah, so, because, yeah, it's not just, it's it's not directly... You know, uh, uh, obvious what fits and what doesn't fit. It has to be discussed, including including the neuroimages, images, right? So, um, as as you bring up the the visual representations of biological data, as as you put it, communicate a sense of objectivity and factness. Um, what else can you tell us about this social practice of neuroimaging? And what do you think are the social implications of the neuroimaging, um, you know, as, as you bring up, uh, you know, how do, how do people outside of the lab, you know, interpret these results? Uh, is that, a, is that a, a, a factor here in, you know, for instance, these, these court cases, right?
1: Right, right. So, I mean, so the, the relationship between kind of visual understandings and or just visualizing in itself visual technologies and violence uh, and, and particularly within this science uh, and, and, and biocriminology has kind of a history right like I said earlier Lombroso too was really keen on this idea that like seeing something was kind of the proof that you needed right and so here I'm kind of also playing on these notions around kind of that seeing is proof right but what I want to kind of what I point at you know in the in the um, in the chapter is how seeing in itself, right, this idea of visualizing itself, visualizing the brain in itself is a very technical process, right? Like, I mean, one of the things that any, you know, most of us who study kind of the sociology of neuroscience or anthropology of neuroscience or who are in SDS or even the neuroscientists themselves will tell you that the first kind of misperception about brain images is that. It's an image of an actual brain because it's not, right? This is actually a technical product really made from like numbers and statistical kind of measurements that then gives us a picture that's colored in. And you see these kind of uh, warm hues and colors that say like this part of the brain is red and this part of the brain is green and this is lighting up and this doesn't lighten up. That stuff itself is like it's not like it's going in and taking pictures of a brain right there's so much technical work that has to happen there uh, in order for us to see what they say they're saying and so what I try to do in that chapter is then really tease apart what does that kind of technical work do so there's a power in a way of visualizing the brain that is doing some kind of work and so the, you know the book itself is called conviction right and so conviction in itself I'm kind of drawing from another um Another professor I'm drawing from, uh, Fernando Vidal's short piece around neuroethics when he talks about the conviction of neuroethics and particularly this kind of idea that you using neuroimaging that we can think about the not simply thinking about seeing the brain, but actually kind of collapsing this kind of idea that the mind is the brain. Like this is the proof that the mind and the brain are the same thing, right? And so here again, I try to think about you know throughout the book kind of that that type of conviction that happens that has to happen in order for the science to, to 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 work right. You have to believe that you're able to kind of see these things in a very objective way. You have to believe that you're able to really you know divide these groups up, these human groups up in ways that actually make sense in order for you to run these run you know run the models or actually you know use the imaging or the imaging to tell you something itself. All of the Now, what's interesting is that all of the, the neuroscientists I talk to will also say things like, look, we don't just use neuroimaging. In fact, neuroimaging is just kind of, I talk about this in the book, it's just like one of the tools in the toolbox, right? It's like one of the things that we use. But the thing that I point out is it is a tool in the toolbox, but it's also one of the most powerful tools that you use, right? This idea of visualizing something does way more work than simply showing someone like a statistical model of why, this person may be at risk for antisocial behavior, right? So it's doing some type of work that really impacts how we think about it in society, that can impact in ways in which we think about society very differently, right? One of the neuroscientists I talk about, an interview talks about this uh, when it comes to um, judges, right? The, the, the neuroscientist knows that like, you know, that they do a lot of work where they're often called in by judges to ask them about you know neuroscientific evidence because a lot of this is going into the courtrooms these days for different reasons not just simply for violence or criminal uh, criminal cases but you know the ways in which like this push into kind of neural law is happening uh, means that there's a lot of communication between neuroscientists uh, and and judges uh, and also prosecutors or lawyers and so one of the things that this neuroscientist talks about is that, you know, that they often have to go in and really teach the judges on how to read these these images, like, you know, to, to make them understand what is good neuroimaging and what is not, you know, what's bad neuroimaging. But then in many ways, right, they're just really transferring over their same type of conviction to these judges to help them kind of understand whether or not uh, certain things should be allowed within the court, certain types of data, uh, evidence should be allowed within the courtroom, right? And so this idea of, um of visualizing the brain then does have uh, an impact on society in ways, um, even if, you know, even if it's, you know, not necessarily kind of what we think it is, right? So it's not always this way in which, like, just because you're seeing this brain, it, you know, a jury will say that this person is guilty or not guilty, but it just has an impact on the kind of visualization of being able to see this and making people believe that they can understand the science in a way, um, or, or they can more readily kind of understand the science than they would if we like presented them, you know, kind of these theories or theorems or you know these large statistical kind of equations, right? It it kind of simplifies that and shortens that distance between science and society, or at least in the ways in which we think about
0: it. Right, and you also talk about some some of these uh, problems that the scientists face when they're trying to interpret these results themselves, um, particularly ch- trying to consider. Their pieces of evidence, in contrast to other pieces of evidence or or other fields. Um, so, could you speak a bit more about? Uh, you, you brought this up before, but but the 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 role of genetics here in, in these risk models, right? Of, of propensity for, for violent behavior. Um, I mean, you already you already mentioned that ex. The XYY hypothesis, um, but you also talk in the book about um, the warrior gene um, and and in general the, these questions about genetic determinism, uh, things like gender and testosterone. So I was wondering how these scientists, you know, consider uh, g- uh, both the social and the genetics, because uh, you know as you mentioned it's been a lot of back and forth and it's usually not one or the other. It's not, you know, it's, it's, it's rarely that that these models are, are completely about biological determinism or, or social determinism. It, it's about trying to, to make that fit, um, you know, including this, this social push hypothesis that you've discussed in the book. So yeah, how, how, how are you seeing those, um, the, you know, those biological and, and environmental, Measures coming together here.
1: Yeah, so you know the, the the chapter on kind of genetics, what I call kind of beyond determinism, um, really tries to take on this kind of question of biosocial to think about or help us kind of think through these notions of biosocial models, uh, particularly biosocial risk models like the, the like the violent brain model. And one of the things I point out um, is that so on the one hand. There's been research on, uh, you know, genetics and violence for a very long time, right? The early kind of, even the early hereditary research, like the twin studies, was actually a, um, a proxy way of trying to get at, you know, genes, right? And then by the 1970s, probably, you know, 1970s, 1980s, there were work, there was work that was coming out about the genetics of violence or the genetics of crime. And we saw it again in the 19, uh, by the time we got to the early 1990s, right? That's where really, like, right after this kind of push, uh, you know, what a lot of scholars may call kind of that rise of kind of this molecular kind of thinking, right after that kind of push where we start to think about the gene in much more complex ways, right? This is kind of the start. This is where we begin to really start thinking about kind of the human genome project. Uh, It's kind of in its infancy right there at the time in the early 1990s. But at the same time, uh, you, we saw that like these questions around the genetics of violence kind of came back, and people were asking a lot of questions. In fact, and there were, you know, um, there was a very um, infamous, I guess you could say, conference that was supposed to be held in 1993, I believe, uh, about the genetics of violence. That so was going to be held, uh, you know, co-sponsored in part by uh, the National Institutes of Health which, you know, led to these huge kind of like blow up from people around the country, particularly uh, people who were focused on these like questions of race and social justice, thinking that, you know, look, this is just kind of a, an old wine and new bottle kind of look where, you know, people are just repackaging those old races deterministic kind of understanding of the violence and now they're repackaging through this new kind of genetics model. And so what we saw was a lot of scrutiny that was happening in the 1990s, uh, as well as excitement around kind of the genetics of violence. And what I talk about with the, the reason I, I talk about the neuroscience of violence is because neuroimaging was happening at the same time, but not receiving the scrutiny, right? So neuroscience and neuroimaging was going on at the very same time. And many of the people who do research on neuroimaging research or neuroscience and neurobiological research are also thinking about genetics, right? And, and in fact, the genetic models of violence, even those in the early 1990s, were in many ways brain models, right? Because what the argument was, the kind of genetic argument around, uh, you know, the infamous kind of MAOA gene was that MAOA in itself was a gene that it, that impacted serotonin levels, which then impacted the way that the brain would actually kind of operate. And so in a way, it was always kind of back to the brain being the center and locus of behavior, right? And on, you know, in the simplest kind of way, I guess, if I, could, if I could put it about the neuroscience of violence or the neurobiology of violence is it's kind of this argument from environments impacting genes, that genes then would impact the brain behavior, and that the reason why one is violent or not is one of two things one either emotionally they can't control their emotions right and so like you concentrate on like this area of the brain like the amygdala and think about whether or not the amygdala the so-called kind of emotional center of the brain uh is misfiring firing the right way not the right size smaller or bigger and then the second part is to think about whether or not they can their decision making is actually good or bad right and that's to think about kind of that frontal area of the brain what we call kind of the prefrontal cortex right but all of this kind of leads back to to again these kind of questions about genetics right so these things end up being tied together and often the neuroscientists i talked with would say well in the in the most ideal way to really get back into this kind of idea of like you know wanting to put all the risk factors on the table and have a more complete understanding of violence. The only way we can have that complete understanding is if we actually combine neuroimaging and genetics, right? So either neuro, you know, what we can call kind of imaging genetics or a neurogenetic model, which actually is gonna take both of these sciences into account in order to kind of, for us to kind of figure out these dynamics, right? And so that's what I try to do in this chapter is kind of think about what well, the ways in which genetics is also being leveraged here uh, in this work without necessarily always being talked about. And that these two things are not necessarily, uh, they're not two kind of sciences, opposing sciences or competing sciences, but they're so intimately tied together in the ways in which we think about the body and biology. right? And so all Mm -hmm. of them kind of speak to this notion of risk, but different ways of getting at risk. And so, so many people have been talking about kind of the ways in which genetic risk was happening. And I'm trying to bring in kind of a conversation around more kind of the neurobiological risk, which, Neurobiology of risk, which is still kind of taking in these kind of questions around how genes impact brains, which then leads to behavior.
0: Right, and I, and basically what you're mentioning too, especially with that, uh, you know, some of the pushback um, with that with that conference, um, that you know, there's the, the biological determinism you know, sort of uh, ideology there was, was the history of it just so tied up with race and racism. So looking at neuroscience today, y- you simultaneously see, you know, the, the, the biology still being being a key part, but also, also these social factors, yet race, as you put it, often goes unsaid. It's, it's sort of this remaining... Haunting presence in a lot of this research that that sometimes gets uh, simply, re- in a sense, replaced or or, or pushed aside um, in favor of socioeconomic and and educational factors, for example. Um, so so, how are you seeing this uh, this field today? You know, specifically the, the science on risk factors for for violence. Um, uh, how how are you seeing it de-racialized and, and what are the mm. implications of the as you put it this this taboo of race in this field?
1: Yeah so the 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 chapter here you know this is you know the chapter that most people ask me about too probably this one and the one about just you know how are they going to use the science um the chapter that I talk about race is is one where I, I really wanted to kind of dive in this question of how they're using race but really it was much more about like how they're not using race and and when i say kind of the taboo of race you know what i'm trying to get at uh again and you've said it, it's kind of this haunting presence of race this kind of idea that race is actually so tied to what the types of questions they have the type of techniques they may use um uh, the, the science in itself it's so tied to it but it's kind of operating in the background right and so in a way it operates in the background And the way it's tied to it is not by asking direct questions about race, but almost going out of your way to not ask questions about race. Right. Like one of the neuroscientists I talked with uh, said something along the lines that, you know, that they talk about race and the history of race and scientific racism in this science to their students. They don't however, talk about this. To their colleagues, and they don't bring it up in conferences. They don't bring it up in any kind of in their papers. They don't bring it up at all there because it's a taboo, a kind of subject in a way that they, you know, it's so much controversy around and so politicized that they don't want to talk about race, right? And well, to me, that brings
0: up. So, okay. I was just gonna say that yeah. so fascinating considering that that uh, right now there's so much controversy over bringing up race in classrooms. Um, that, Absolutely. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, 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 here, here, are saying Like, yeah, that's a completely fine, you know, place to bring that up. But in the research lab, right? That, that, it's almost this assumption too that, um, you know, we're 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 as neuroscientists, we're we're, we're going beyond the, um, you, you know, the, the we're going beyond the skin. we're going, we're going further than skin deep here, right? Like, we're Absolutely. we're, we're Absolutely. and the yeah, we colorblind. Right, right. The the brain is a brain. It it has no color. Um, so, That's right. So so why should race become be part of this conversation? Right. Is it seems to be, at least in part, for some of them, the the attitude. Right. So yeah. what's What do you think the, the implications of that too? Right.
1: Yeah. So the so the implications for me uh, kind of come to this question around exactly cover kind of what you were bringing up around this this. This colorblind science right now I'm paraphrasing sociologist uh, Eduardo Bernouez silver here from his book racism without racism to say that here we essentially are having scientific racism without racist scientists right and the way in which to move away from race is to really say look if i don 't say race if we don 't deal with race it 's not going to actually impact It's not going to it's it's not necessarily that it's gonna impact our work. I think the fear here is much more around being called racist, right? Knowing that this is a very Mm -hmm. politicized kind of uh, behavior. I mean, I'm sorry, very politicized. It is politicized behavior, but very politicized science that has this really racist history to it. Part of it is to protect yourself from being called racist, right? Most of the people who do this work are, you know, probably identify as white, you know, and so, It's a way in which they they are trying to protect themselves, and I and I don't necessarily see anything. uh, I I mean, like I say, I can I don't necessarily uh, I can see why that's the case, right? I can see why, given that history, that they're trying to kind of protect themselves. But the question that Mm -hmm. I ask them is though. So this is a risk model, right? And your whole point is that by thinking about risk, I'm sorry, by thinking about the brain, that we can then actually predict, in a way, who will be at risk for violence down the road, right? And we take, you know, so we take, in, and it's a biosocial model, so we're taking the social seriously, and we're also taking the biological seriously. But the question I ask is, how serious are we actually taking the social here? Because it's not that I'm asking you to bring in a new racial science. and So the, the, the point here is not to say, hey, you need to actually be measuring race some kind of way in here so that you could, you know, think about what race does uh, or think about, you know, what, you know, uh, a black, let's say a black person's brain does in, you know, in relation to let's say a white person's brain when it comes to violence, right? Um, the question comes much more around if he's going to use a risk model and something like, let's say racism and inequality are absolute risk model risk factors for being violent within society or being even thought about as being violent, being arrested within society, all of these things. My question is, how do you actually bring in something so complex like racism? And that's where, you know, so much of this work kind of comes back to. is like, how do you deal with this notion of inequality? How do you deal with like social, like this notion of power within society? How do these risk models deal with that? And the answer I kept getting was it's too complex. Racism is too complex. A lot of these things are just too complex to put in the model. And so then it begs the question where if they're too complex to put in the model, who is your model actually made for, right? Can your model then actually predict, let's say, whether or not a young Black child will grow up and, you know, be antisocial or, or you know, or a, a psychopath? Um, if you can't actually bring in, in your model, the ways in which racism may impact that child's future. And so one of the examples that I, uh, I like use is when you do this research, you know, again, they have to, you know, diet, they have to go by the DSM and kind of go by uh, and kind of figure out, you know, these groups of who's antisocial, or who's at risk to be antisocial or psychopathy, and then who's quote unquote normal. And when they do that, uh, they're not just looking at psychological factors. They're also looking at a lot of social things too, like arrest records. So arrest records is one of the things that they look and they say, like, okay, well, this person's been arrested X amount of times, a lot of times. Therefore, you know, they can check off some of these lists in in, in some of these scales or or tests that they're doing by saying this person is probably, you know, more or less, uh, you know, uh, riskier because they've been arrested, you know, X amount of times. But of course, we know that the arrest records themselves are not objective at all. Right. Where you live, how you look. You know, all of these things play a role in whether or not someone's going to be arrested and things like that. Right. That itself is just kind of social practice, just like defining crime. This is a very social thing. Right. We define on whether or not I mean, there's socially defined on whether or not someone is going to get arrested. Some people may get arrested and not even have a record. Right. And so in that way you can see like these complexities of racism being built into this model without them being actually taken serious. And so that's the question that I have. And that's the actual repercussion, right? Is that whether or not these models themselves, once they are translated out of the lab and they're placed in something like the criminal justice system, which we know is a highly racialized system. We just, you know, learned about this again or we just got an example of this again yesterday, right? That they can actually re. Purpose and uh, not just repurpose, but reconstitute the social dynamics within society and particularly the privileges and inequalities within society in very easy kind of ways. Right. And so the question is, if you're going to use if you're building this technology to, you know, be a more objective way to think about crime or you know, a better way to think about these things, but it cannot address or push back the ways in which systemic inequalities work. There's a better question then, just how good is your model, right? And this is where I kind of get at, even both, both, you know, throughout the book, uh, I kind of lead with this and end with this. This is kind of normative valence of these neuroscience models, right? That they may not be the old school kind of scientific, racist, blatantly racist kind of models, but at the same time, they they cannot push back against systemic inequalities, and therefore they work in a very normative way. So they actually may make those systems like the criminal justice system, which is highly racialized, a more efficient way, right and we've also have seen this we've seen a parallel with this already when we think about uh, these um, algorithms within society, which too are supposed to be you know very neutral things, but we see both within you know the criminal justice system and also just other social uh, places where these things have actually exacerbated inequalities because. They don't necessarily think about inequalities, right? They're able to kind of supposedly operate in this neutral way, but they're really operating in a very normative way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, think, like, you know, how how is it is it not going to be used in that way? Given that, you know, as as Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham puts it, right, the mm-hmm. mega language mm-hmm. of race, like, mm-hmm. like, like, you know, if the if, that, if the society is racist, how is it not, go, you know, going to be used in that way? Especially when we're talking about a behavior that is so criminalized uh, you know mm-hmm. certain kinds of violence um but uh, before we run out of time I, I wanted to to ask just a couple more questions um so in your uh, penultimate chapter you're, you're talking here about some of these implications of this research right so as the violent brain research vindicates a kind of medical model of violence we're seeing this 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 goal of screening and intervening on risky brains more generally. Um, so, so uh, of course, this presupposes any sort of intervention presupposes a plastic brain in a sense that can mm-hmm. be trained. It, it can be trained or, or fixed by some other form of intervention. Um, so, how are researchers trying to fix, you know, the, these risky or, or violent brains today? And and how are they? Uh, as you put it, overselling this this therapeutic promise, right, of this research. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that chapter there, and and it's it's a very interesting one because we would think, right, that just like before, the idea is. Hey, we're going to figure out, you know, some way to fix brains. Let's say, like some surgery, like we had within the 1960s, where you know, neu- uh, psychosurgery, essentially lobotomies, were kind of put forth as a way of curing violence. Right? We think it's going to either be this kind of invasive way or pharmaceutical way. Right? This kind of way in which we can alter brains or alter chemicals um, in a way to change violence. And what was so interesting, I think, about talking with the neuroscientists and what I get is that therapeutic promise, the promise, therapeutic promises means that, uh, you know, they're not necessarily looking for a cure today, but that the science itself, by doing the science itself, it will lead to a cure somewhere down the road. What they're proposing today, though, you know, may or probably no different or not even probably there. It's really no different from what I would say sociologists and others have put forth about ways in which you know we need to uh, fix society. And that is, so they look at things like, there's like, uh, you know, better childhood nutrition, uh, you know, eliminating poverty, right? But better education, all these ways in which you're like, yeah, we do need those things, right? But why is this important to the brain? Well, for them, it's important to the brain because all these things means you're, you make a healthier brain, right, the idea to still comes back to making healthier brains, right? So having better childhood nutrition means that, the, you know, the child's brain would be better, and it helps mitigate potential risk down the road, right? Of course, this opens up a different kind of question too. And, and I bring this up both in the chapter on imaging, and I come back to it here, and that is the role of the quote-unquote normal person, right? And, and in terms of the normal here. And so one of the things I say that's a risk here is that this has moved away from scanning the brains of criminals, scanning the brain from, you know, people we would already determine as being violent. And really the push now is to say, you know, the earlier we can actually scan someone's brain, particularly a child's brain, the better chance we have to mitigate violence or mitigate their risk, I'm sorry, For antisocial behavior, which then mitigates their risk for violence. So the idea is, we need to actually be scanning the brains of people very young, right? And we're no longer scanning the brains of people who are "quote unquote" already designated as criminal. We're actually thinking about scanning. We're actually scanning the brains of people who are we would call normal, right? We want to know what's the risk in normal populations. That's a huge change, right? That's a huge change from, you know, the early kind of Lombroso thinking where it was about just identifying criminals. And it's even a huge change from kind of the um, you know early the early work that came out of this in the 1990s which only focused on already uh, psychologically defined or criminally defined populations right the real push now and where they see the promise is to to think about these risk factors with youth right and so that's why i kind of I, I really pushed them on these kind of ideas where you know, if if you're going to kind of think about, you know, a young, let's say like black child, right, and you're not going to kind of think about systemic inequality, systemic racism, uh, what is it, how good is this model, right? The way in which you're going to define, you know, things like, uh, or the impacts of something like childhood nutrition, where you redefine it back down to kind of like brain behavior brings up a question of whether or not, you know, we even need to be doing, um, let's say, these multi-million dollar kind of research of putting multi-million dollars into research and neuroimaging if the if the solution is just we need to be fixing childhood nutrition, right? I'm like, well, yes, let's do that, but why do we need like why do we need science to prove that? Right. Again, and and, and it comes to me with this, this tension and, and it really because I also do kind of a lot of research around this kind of the science of this, this 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 tension that science needs to be there to kind of prove these things in ways that social scientists and, and humanists have already done right. We see this also with like the idea that race is a social construct and not a biological construct. A lot of this also was being leveraged by the fact that the human genome project proved that, like you know, we're ninety nine point nine percent right. Right, proving something that you know social scientists had been saying for years before that time. Like so you didn't actually prove it in that type of way, but the idea that you need scientific validation to things is also kind of a question that we have to really wrestle with within society. Um whether or not we even need that, right? And particularly do we need that when there's so many millions of dollars that go into things like neuroimaging.
0: Yeah, it's it's so it's so expensive and it and it also is um, you know, it 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 really hides the the violence or or at least the you know, um, extraction, exploitation that often is part of these, the power dynamics of research. Right. Um, and, and by focusing on, you know, for instance, the, the violence of the, of, of the so-called criminal over the, the violence of the so-called law enforcer, right. Um, Mm -hmm. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah and so so you know just 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 to get to the uh last chapter of your book sure. here um that you you know you bring up a number of problems with this research as well i mean you know you bring up a mission of lived experience the, as you as you brought up the normative inattention to, to lives the the complexity you know of society and, and these social factors and, and embodiments as well as you know normal versus abnormal constructs that come from this research and, uh, and all of that. So, so, you know, are, are there certain things that you would like to see change in this line of research? Do you, do you see it changing anytime soon, or or is it really a, a matter of going beyond the, the research as you're, as you were just saying that maybe, may, maybe there needs to be a, a more limited, uh, you know, investment in this kind of research or, or, or at least, uh, reconsideration of the implications of it?
1: Yeah, very good question. I mean, so for me, you know, one of the things I hope that happens with this is that by trying to pay attention to many of these things that I'm bringing up, right, just like the neuroscientists who said, racism is too complex, it, it should actually push them to reconsider the question, that, the very research question that they're asking, right? If you can't do certain things, then how good is the research question? What is the actual, um, you know, justification for it? But also how good is the intervention going to be, right? If it's not going to do certain things. And so hopefully in one way is to help them rethink this, right? So maybe even push them away from asking questions about risk for violence to be asking other types of questions um, with their research. And really, you know, for me, one of the things that I, I constantly come back with in the, both in genetics and neuroscience, as someone who's like looks at, you know, who you know is doing kind of the sociology of neuroscience, is for them to be much more clear about what their research can do or what the the results of this research can do and what it can't do, right? Because often the way it's framed, we don't really talk about what it cannot do. It's always kind of talked about it's going to do all of these wonderful things. And to me, that actually you have to go back up the chain with that because that is also a question about how we write grants to get funded, right? When you write grants uh-huh. to get funded, you, you put these lofty goals in it, like, you know, you're gonna cure cancer almost, right? And that's that's the implication of this. And then that's actually how it's written up as well. But that's that's very problematic because that's not what ends up happening, right? That's not a, what ends up happening with much of this work. Like it actually only can speak to so much, right? And so really being able to define like what exactly does this speak to? What can it speak to, right? That will actually help us within society, those of us who don't, you know, on an everyday basis understand the way the brain works or understand the way in which these kind of models work, then understand what's the actual social implications here. Are there social implications here? And then, like you said, maybe that means different types of funding go different, to different places to kind of actually deal with this work, right? The other thing is that they kind of bank on this notion that, you know, by having more knowledge, that society is going to, in some kind of way, change. But I think over the last few years, you know, particularly this last year and a half that we've been dealing with COVID, we know that that's not going to be the case either, right? And we've known that there's been historical examples of that as well, that just by science saying this is a thing and that we should do X, it doesn't mean society and it doesn't mean policymakers, it doesn't mean leaders are going to actually follow what they say, right? And so the the idea that they're banking on, on this notion that just by having more data means that we deal with violence better is also flawed. And so, having them kind of rethink the, those social implications, and potentially, you know, just rethinking the science. For me, you know, I, I kind of come from, you know, like Troy Duster was one of my mentors on this, and like, you know, Duster has written about this stuff with genetics for a while, right? In the ways in which, particularly, you know, how genetics, uh, in, in just like DNA in itself is actually fueling the ways in which racial disparities within crime or racial disparities within the criminal justice system actually operates. And, you know, I too am, like Duster, am not convinced that this is this is a science that needs to happen in the first place, right? And I, that's that's just like something I had, I did not change, I think, after doing the project either, right? I just was not convinced that we actually needed to know the neurobiological underpinnings of crime or violence in order for us to address those things within society. And it never really made sense to me because like Duster notes, you know, crime is such a socially constructed and very flexible kind of understandings that we have, then how can you like hold, like the idea that you can hold it steady enough to actually study it in a kind of scientific way is so problematic. And that's, you know, it comes back to that kind of question that these are social behaviors and we're looking for scientific solutions to social behaviors that, For questions that science maybe can't answer for the most part, like it it just can't totally answer these things. Right. And so just being able to think about those in in that kind of way, you know, of, you know, rethinking their questions, rethinking their energy, you know, on what they can actually address and what they can't.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And we, you know, we, we could go on uh, many more hours talking about this fantastic book. And I, I do really want to emphasize to listeners that it's uh, it's such a great and important read. So I, I hope you'll pick up a copy. But um, I, I just wanted to thank you for your time, Oliver. Um, before we go, could you um, tell us a little bit more about, uh, you know, what you're working on now or, or what sort of upcoming projects you have?
1: Sure, sure. So um, my kind of next project that I've moved into, so as I said before, one of the things I wanted to do with this was to kind of think about how neuroscience uses race. And obviously, you know, we found out that like, these neuroscientists who are studying antisocial behavior are not really thinking about race. So what I have moved on to in the project that I'm working on now uh, is kind of twofold. there's two projects I'm working on now. The first project is actually looking at the social and ethical implications of a different type of neuroscience. And this is the neuroscientist who are studying uh, implicit racial bias. And so what I'm interested here is really thinking about how they are defining race, because they absolutely are having to think about race. But even more than that, the fact that they're kind of studying uh, the supposed neurobiological underpinnings of bias and particularly racial bias behavior is very interesting to me. Um, and so I'm really trying to think through, kind of, you know, what are the ways in which they think about race, but also, you know, what are the ways in which they define these kind of, you know, things like racism and 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 uh, and and bias, and how they actually trace it to particular areas of the brain, right? And so it's so that's part of the research that I'm doing. And then a second part of that um, that that, actually, that came out of me starting that project was to really think about um, the relationship between social justice and science to really kind of, you know, keen in on the ways in which these questions about from everything from anti-racism to diversity, equity, and inclusion on, you know, college campuses, uh, how that has both, how that does and does not impact science, right? So one, uh, I kind of start, you know, that second, that third project, I'm sorry, it kind of starts with a basic question and that is, can science be anti-racist? Right. What does it mean for science to be anti-racist or or an institution to be anti-racist? Right. Is that even possible? And what I'm trying to fill out there is to really think about the ways in which uh, certain. Um, you know, policies around anti-racism or on campus or policies around. Um, uh diversity and equity inclusion impact labs in the ways in which they conduct their work and on the flip side i'm trying to think about those like those neuroscientists who are studying race who would say that their research does fit into these kind of social justice kind of paradigms and what does that mean really try to elucidate like what does it mean for them to kind of think about those complexities that these neuroscientists i said before couldn't think about or weren't able to kind of capture these understandings of inequality and what does that mean? And particularly, I want to focus on, um, you know, neuroscientists from marginalized, racially marginalized backgrounds or other kind of uh, marginalized social locations who, you know, have always built built in kind of social justice into much of their academic work and much of their kind of identity. And like, what does it mean then to do research if you have that kind of built in? And like, you know, the the, the I guess, Potentials and perils of kind of doing that type of work.
0: Yeah, those those sound like really fascinating projects. And obviously, um, you know, next next book, you know, would love to interview <laughs> you for that too. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Take care, Oliver. All
1: right. thank you, Tuesday.